They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. to another episode of the Juan on Juan podcast. I'm your host Juan. For this episode I had to wake up at three in the morning to prep because our guest is on the other side of the world. On this episode we talked to Lawrence Caruana and Lawrence is a Maltese artist, author, and a lecturer. He studies esoterica, uh, Gnostic beliefs, alchemy, and he's a visionary artist. This has been the most complex topic that I've done so far on the show. And it's not complex that you can't understand it. You can. But there's just so much information. And this episode is based on a two-hour lecture that Lawrence has on his YouTube channel. You can check that out uh, on there. It's a two-hour lecture that breaks down... Gnosticism because a lot of people don't know what it is exactly. He goes really in depth on that video. On here, this is a crash course in Gnosticism. You know, we talk about it, we discuss some points on it, and we really just briefly touch on the major parts. I love esoterica, I love different ideas and listening to this it's like wow it, it it really goes deep and it makes you think you'll see why it is heretic why it was considered a heresy by the church because it goes against our traditional views on what christianity is it goes against the narrative there are a lot of similarities but then there are, are a lot of differences all at the same time. But then again, this is what attracts me to it. A different point of view, a different perspective on what these people believed. And remember, 
Gnosticism is not a religion. It is a set of beliefs and every there's different types of Gnostics as well. Just how there are different types of Catholics, different types of Christians. They all differ, but they have similar beliefs. It's not every day I, you can talk to somebody like Lawrence, who is a scholar and what I would call professional in this. He's dedicated a lot of his life into looking into it. And again, that's why it's esoterica. Only a certain people care about it to be quite honest and only certain people are going to look into it and, and interpret it for what it is this is an episode that i had been looking up to uh in these upcoming weeks and i was very excited for it so without further ado this is the gnostic worldview with lawrence caruana all right lawrence i believe we are live uh how are you sir i'm fine and you I am good as well for the listeners. I have to, I had to wake up at four in the morning because obviously I'm working around Lawrence's schedule. And uh, I just want to thank you again for taking the time out of your day to talk to me about this. And, and, and I truly appreciate it. Yeah. For me, likewise, it's a pleasure just being able to describe or share the experience of the Gnostic worldview for me is is one of the greatest pleasures I can have in my day. So there you are. That's great. Um, yeah, I, like I was saying before, it's amazing how many people don't know what this is. And, you know, I'm the type of person that I like to I, I think it's so fascinating, uh, you know, theology and everything all together. Uh, it, it amazes me. So before we start, uh, Lawrence, where can the listeners find your work? Um, you have a website, social media, whatever you want to share so that people can find your work if they're interested in this uh, type of, you know, esoteric uh, knowledge. Exactly. I think the best place to start, I guess, would be my website, which is lcarwana.com, L-C-A-R-U-A-N-A.com. And from there, you can get various links which go to YouTube. And on YouTube, I have lectures on Gnosticism and alchemy, as well as on visionary art. And uh, my my profession basically is I'm an artist as well as the director of the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art. So if you go to uh, academyofvisionaryart.com, you get to see the other side of my life, which is running this academy. So going to Facebook, you'll also find my own name, Lawrence Caruana, on Facebook, as well as the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art on Facebook. And from there, you can get it into all the images and so on. Through Amazon, I sell various books. And so if you type in my name onto Amazon with probably the name of one of my books, like uh, The Hidden Passion, which is my Gnostic novel, then you'll get my profile on Amazon. So I'm, I'm pretty much around, not too active on Instagram, but uh, active on other social media platforms. And Lawrence, this is a question I ask everybody when they come on the show, it sorts of sets the tone. This is the most complex episode I've done to date. It's going to be a crash course in Gnosticism for the people who don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so before we start, who is Lawrence Caruana? <laughs> Lawrence Caruana is now 57 years of age. As I said, I'm a director at the Vienna Academy of Visionary Arts. So I live in Vienna. 
I was born in Toronto, Canada of Maltese parents. So my cultural background is from an island in the Mediterranean called Malta. And I grew up in Toronto, studied in Toronto at the University of Toronto. Philosophy was really my main subject. And from there, though, I wanted to pursue painting. And I came to Vienna to study painting in Vienna. And from there, that changed a lot about my direction in life. I really wanted to live in Europe. And it took me a few years, but I eventually moved to Europe. And the easiest place was Malta because of my parents. So I lived in Malta first, and then from there to Munich, and from there to Paris, and lived. Uh, I married to a beautiful, wonderful French woman who is the co-director of the Vienna Academy of Visionary Arts. So my wife, Florence, and I lived in Paris for a good 15 years until the birth of our son. And then we moved out to the countryside. So we have a nice little farmhouse out in Burgundy, the region of France. And then uh, we created this academy. And so through the academy, uh, we found ourselves in Vienna. And I've been living in Vienna for the last seven years. So I'm basically a painter. I'm also an author because I've authored four or five books by now. And I see myself as a lecturer because I give lectures both at the academy and those get recorded and put onto YouTube. Of course, that's who I am professionally. Who I am as a human being is much different. I've had my wanderings through life, moving from country to country and, and so on. So uh, I would say that I've lived a very unusual life, a very atypical life, and I'm kind of happy about that in a way. I'm happy with the journey. I'm happy where I've ended up right now. So things are looking good, and uh, we'll just see where it goes from here. I think I can relate to that. I'm still finding my my thing. Another reason why I started the this podcast, uh, exploring different realms of knowledge that you know, somebody wouldn't otherwise be looking into. And it's really opened my mind to to everything and, and expanded my consciousness and stuff like that. And that's what's so amazing about it. Because again, I say this all the time, people nowadays don't read. <laughs> and they're so sucked up into the garbage you see on social media, and the media, especially I mean, and I know you're not in the United States, but uh, over here, it's, it's very toxic. And <laughs> especially with so much going on in the world. Um, um, so what led you to start learning and studying this topic, Gnosticism? And can you break down what Gnosticism is in lay terms for somebody who is not 100% familiar with this? Because it's a very broad term and they use it so loosely. And again, mm -hmm. it... It's a, almost an umbrella term that that falls over a certain group of beliefs because there right. are different types of Gnostics as well. Yes. Yeah, I'll begin with as brief as possible uh, uh, explanation of what Gnosticism is and then give my own experience of uh, going deeper and deeper into Gnosticism. So Gnosticism in its more strict or narrow sense would be a religious movement from the first centuries of our era in the time of earliest Christianity and uh, Judaism in its temple period. 
So we were fortunate to find some texts that emerged in 1945. And scholars had always known of the existence of Gnosticism, which was this religious movement as a kind of heretical form of Christianity. But through the discovery of the Nag Hammadi texts, as they're called, we were able to get a direct view of their worldview through these texts. Now, unfortunately, the texts themselves constitute a massive puzzle. And so understanding the text is not that simple. And also the whole process after the discovery of having them translated and emerge into our culture has been a long and slow one. But that's Gnosticism in the narrow sense is what emerges when we read these texts closely. In the more general sense, Gnostic just means someone who knows, and it's been used in a general sense for esoteric knowledge. And uh, Helena Blavatsky with Theosophy often used the word Gnostic. Uh, Jules Douanel created the Gnostic Church in 1924, I think it is. And they didn't have access to any of these texts at that time period. So uh, Gnosticism had this general meaning as a, anyone who knows something about esotericism is a Gnostic. Now, it's fine to use it in that way, but I tend to use it in a much narrower sense of referring to this tradition that grew around those specific Nag Hammadi texts that were discovered in 1945. Um, let me tell you a little bit about how I came across those texts because, and how I came across Gnosticism in my life. The story begins, as I said, the texts were discovered in 1945, but it took a good long time for them to actually be recognized by scholars for what they were and then preserved because they were in such fragmented condition. And then UNESCO put together a team of scholars who started to trans put them under glass to preserve them and then put them in the right order since they were very fragmented and start to translate them. So the first book of Gnosticism, what's called the Nag Hammadi Library, edited by James M. Robinson, only got published in 1977. And so I studied at university in the early 80s. And while I was at university in the early 80s, I came across these texts. And it was quite a mystery back then because these were quite new. Even scholars didn't quite know what to make of these. And anyone who picks up the Nag Hammadi Library and starts to skim through the, the different Gospels and Apocrypha and so on, realizes that they have their own unique language, that they're very fragmented, so it's difficult to get through them. And, and they, the texts themselves come to the subject of Gnosticism from so many different angles that it really does take a lifetime of rereading and rereading to discover new levels of meaning. And for me, the first level of meaning, it was really the psychological one, that uh, they were amazing psychologists. And C.G. Jung, Carl Gustav Jung, loved Gnosticism for that very reason. Indeed, one of the texts, uh, the original of the 13 Gnostic texts, is called the Jung Codex because it was bought for him and was in his possession for a while. So the psychological reading, they were profound psychologists for the time period. 
and uh, the the in the time period of my life, uh, being born Catholic and raised Catholic, I saw these texts as very much heretical, and I was actually attracted to it for that reason. It's, ah, aside from the canonical version of the life of Christ, where when you open the New Testament, you understand that Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John give you the four canonical or orthodox versions of the life of Christ. In fact, there are many other gospels and many other texts which give alternative versions of who this man or savior or divine being Jesus Christ actually was. So delving into that was definitely heresy from the standpoint of the church, but fascinating from my standpoint. And I have to say that at the time, being at university in my early 20s, I was also undergoing a lot of profound interior uh, digging. I had moved out of the family house, moved in with my girlfriend. We both came from a Catholic background, but uh, neither of our parents approved of this idea of us living together as opposed to getting married. So by their version of things, we were living in sin. And uh, so I saw myself very much the heretic. But uh, as a heretic, I needed to find some kind of uh, support for what I was doing. And uh, to give you an example then of a fragment of the text, which became very important to me at the time, was from the Gospel of Philip. And uh, it reads, uh, fear not the flesh, nor love it. If you fear it, it will gain mastery over you. If you love it, it will swallow and paralyze you. And the Gnostics themselves had a very interesting uh, attitude towards sexuality in the flesh. Some of them were ascetic and said that we have to just deny the flesh. And some of them were more libertine and said that the best way is to just surrender to the flesh and that you have to know it uh, from the same the gospel of uh, Philip. There's a saying that uh, if you do not recognize what desire is, it will master you. And so you have to know what desire is. And that's how these texts are very psychological. They, they invite you to find within yourself what these deeper urges are, not just desire, but other things like pride or fear or anger and all these uh, emotions which upwell from within and end up making us their slaves in a way because they guide our life. They, they, we follow these urges. And the Gnostics give you a way to name all of these, name your desire, name your fear, name your wrath or your pride, and then give you a way to, to wrap your mind around it, to know them. And once you get to know them, you can, you can begin to experience freedom from your slavery to your own desires. And that's how Gnosticism appealed to me during my 20s. And I can't say I understood the texts. All I understood was fragments. Uh, another very important fragment at the time, also from the Gospel of Philip, was very simple. It just said, enter through the image. And as an artist, I, I really found that profound. And I put it on a little piece of paper and hung it over my uh, easel and my drawing board. But I really didn't know what they meant until years later.
And I have to say it was when I was living in Munich and now I was in my early 30s, uh, specifically when I was 33 years of age, which is a very kind of symbolic year, uh, on one night, which I have forever engraved in my memory, May 11th, 1995, I had a total and complete spiritual awakening. Now, uh, I think various things led to that moment uh, where I was in my life at the time. That evening, I did uh, smoke uh, hashish, so a form of cannabis, and uh, that played a role, but I've since uh, had many, many experiences with cannabis and other sacred plants, and I can't say I ever arrived at that same place. So it played a role, but was not the fundamental cause. Maybe it was the uh, constellations in the heavens and the alignment of the planets. It's hard to say, but on that evening, I was... Uh, looking at an alchemical engraving and an alchemical engraving of this spiraling clouds leading down to this circle of light at the center. And I entered into a state of contemplation on this image. And I can say I really, and this is the only language I have for it, I entered through the image. It stopped being an image and became a complete vision. And through this vision, I experienced divinity directly for the first time. This was, without a doubt, a very mystical experience, but uh, I didn't have the language or the words to describe it. I can only say that being brought up in the Catholic tradition, I always considered God to be God the Father, this old man in heaven with the beard sitting on a throne. Whereas it was nothing like that whatsoever. It was a felt presence and a felt presence where I knew I came to know in the purely Gnostic sense of gnosis uh, who I was and where I came from. And it all seemed to come in one massive uh, explosion of understanding. So I knew that I was divine in origin, that I possessed a divine spark within me, and that this came from that presence, this divinity, and that we were all simply a part of this divine oneness that pervaded through the entire cosmos, but we forgot it and were blinded from it most of the time. Now, I'm actually forced to use the language of Gnosticism to describe the experience, but at the time I didn't have those words. That's what turned me on to Gnosticism, is I had the mystical experience and I tried to find a way to describe it to myself, to articulate it. And it was only in the Gnostic texts that I started to find the language that I needed to describe that experience to myself. And for the Gnostics, for example, divinity is simply one, a oneness. And they just use the word uh, the one or oneness to describe divinity. So for them, these kind of mystical experiences, which is gnosis, the direct experience of the divine, is just a given. It's the starting point for their texts. Now, I didn't realize that in my initial readings but as I read deeper and deeper into the texts, I started to understand that if you don't get that, that's one reason why the texts don't make a lot of sense to people, is they're deeply, deeply mystical. 
and depend on mystical experience for that for that uh, comprehension. So since that time, since that awakening, which I experienced in 1995, as I said, I was 33 years of age. I've just read and reread and reread the texts, penetrating deeper and deeper into what they are. In all honesty, I think I've probably understood maybe 20% or 30% of what they truly are. They're that dense, they're that uh, profound, that it requires multiple readings over a lifetime in order to, to grasp it fully. I don't want to turn people away from Gnosticism because what I'm saying is, whatever you find within those texts will be yours. Every fragment will become your fragment and it will become your thread. And it's like following a rabbit hole or a labyrinth and every turning in this labyrinth will be part of your path to understanding these texts. And so in that sense, there's no one complete understanding of the text. It's just simply everyone threads the labyrinth in their own way. That's, that was very powerful, Lawrence, and uh, such a crazy experience. Um, and again, yeah, like you said at the end, people will interpret it. It's art, so people will interpret it the way they want. And obviously you being a, a visionary artist, which also interests me, and that's another topic in itself. Um, I can relate in a way. I was, I was raised Christian. And what attracts me to all this is the the heresy, you know, the 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 difference it, it the different approach, because like you said, we see Jesus as this person, this this old man in 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 heaven somewhere, you know, this male masculine figure, and Gnosticism takes that and almost flips it on his head. Mm -hmm. You know, you have this this one being that's both female and male all at the same time mm -hmm. and like you said and i believe all religions need a, a mystical comprehension because that's that's my issue with religion you know it's it's ask for guidance you know if, if you read this bible verse uh talk to god to see what it means to, you know so he can guide you and I have a problem with that because as you may know, religion is a business. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a form of control. Um, for example, Scientology, that type there's cults like that, that they call religions, but you have to look at it for what it's really for. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it's a cult with demonic origins, mm -hmm. which a lot of people don't know as well. Yeah. You know, as far as, as Scientology goes. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing is, uh, so yeah, the, the, the heresy fascinated me as well. And there was a, this figure from the Catholic church that talked about how you were talking about how the Gnostics, uh, see the flesh in a more loose sense. I forgot his name. I can't bring it, but he was talking about how there were sexual fiends and stuff like that. I don't know if you know his name. Epiphanius, I think. Yes. Yes. And uh, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. It's still debated. It's very interesting. He, so the story with the Gnostics is that their original texts were considered to be heretical and they were either burned or buried. But in any case, uh, because they were condemned by the early church, they didn't survive. So all we had was 
the writings of the early church fathers, people named Irenaeus of Lyon or uh, Epiphanius, who you just mentioned. And Epiphanius was an interesting one because he claimed to have belonged to a Gnostic community. And he claims that he knew their innermost workings. And so he said in his writings that as a fellow Gnostic, you would uh, cross, let's say, the desert and enter one of these communities, and you would tickle the palm discreetly of the other person as you were greeting them. And this was a secret sign that you were a Gnostic like them. And so that evening, because you had come into their midst, uh, they would gather in the darkness, men, woman, wife, husband, didn't matter. And in the darkness, they would engage in these massive orgies uh, because this other Gnostic had come among them. And he goes on to describe in detail this uh, bizarre form of the Eucharist in which they use sexual practices to perform the Eucharist. And, and scholars or anyone who reads this text has a lot of problem in trying to understand is, is this guy recounting the truth or is this just some massive fantasy that he's concocted to uh, smear the Gnostics? And both versions have some credibility that it's possible the Gnostics were libertine and they were engaging in these kind of practices as a way to liberate themselves from slave, being enslaved by their own desires. But on the other hand, when you read the text, they're definitely more in favor of asceticism and denying the body and so on. Although some texts do some of the actual original Gnostic texts do say, and those other groups who are more libertine are quite, not quite right in their practice. And so it's possible that you had both ascetic and libertine Gnostics in the early period. It's, it's, it's a fascinating subject, and there's no way that we can be sure what they were doing and what rituals they had back then. That's, uh, that's crazy. That's definitely against the the main beliefs, especially with all these gospels and everything coming out. So before we dive deeper into this, why is it important we know this knowledge? You know, somebody who's probably listening to this going, why should I care about this? Mm -hmm. Why is this important? Yeah. What can I get from this? Yeah. Well, to begin with, we live in a Christian culture, whether we recognize it or not. Uh, myself, I have to say that I grew up Christian, I inherited this Catholic tradition. And while I was studying at university, I came to realize that I can't quite believe in it anymore. I should say that it might help people to differentiate between the church, which is a political power structure, Christianity, which is a religion, and then the Christian myth, and it's simply a mythology. It's simply, but when I say a mythology, I mean that in the most profound way. I'm an artist, a painter, and I work with images. I'm also a writer. I work with stories. And there are truths that emerge through images and myths that can't emerge in any other form. So Christianity as a myth is actually very, very profound once you get rid of the dogma that's been accrued through religion and through the church. So that's our cultural inheritance. We are Christians, whether in Europe or in America, we're Christians. 
And now what has happened in the 20th, well, it happened in the 20th century is that these texts emerged, which gave us a much broader picture of Christianity. Coming back to my own story, when I rejected Christianity uh, in, during my time in my 20s, I embraced all religions. I embraced all traditions, and I still do. But what happened was I realized that uh, even though I embrace all traditions, I come from one tradition, and I have to respect the tradition that I come from. So what the Gnostic texts do is they allow you to hold on to your own Christian tradition while realizing that it was actually very profound and spiritual and liberal uh, as a mythology. And I can use Gnosticism as a way to approach Buddhism, as a way to approach Hinduism, as a way to approach ancient Egypt and Greece. Uh, every mythology, philosophy, spiritual tradition that I've come across, Gnosticism becomes a very important key for me to be able to understand that. Probably because they all share in their deepest reading this mystical idea that divinity is a oneness and whether this divinity appears under the image of Vishnu or Christ or Buddha or whoever, it's all really leading back to the same experience. And I think it's important for people to read and experience Gnosticism because now Christianity is not just God the Father in heaven, but rather God the Father and Goddess the Mother. They do hold both divinity to be both male and female. And this fundamental male-female entity gave birth to a child which itself was both male and female and christ was the male aspect and sophia was the female aspect so now you have a savior who is both male and female and for our culture and the time period that we're living in this is extremely important for for a number of reasons but it, it encourages you to live your life seeking out the same kind of duality in balance leading to oneness in all things. I, I just think that uh, then there's the whole personal experience of seeking enlightenment through the reading of these texts and, and bringing you closer and closer to that primordial understanding of who you are where do you come from and where are you going in your life? And the Gnostics texts give you the keys for, for answering those questions. Right on. Um, so without further ado, Lawrence, uh, we can dive deeper into it now. Uh, what is Gnosticism? Yeah. And, uh, you know, what, who were the Gnostics and you know, what are some of their beliefs so we can start breaking that down in, uh, you know, further detail. Right. So as I said, uh, we knew of the existence of this early form of Judaism and Christianity from the first centuries of our era. So 100, 200, 300 AD. Uh, and then it was repressed because it was judged to be a heresy. And for most of history, we only had the church fathers view that this was a heresy until the Nag Hammadi texts were discovered in 1945. 
Now, when you crack open the Nag Hammadi library and start reading it, what you'll find is gospels in the traditional sense of here's the life of Christ or these are the sayings of, of Jesus Christ. But you'll also find creation stories and probably the most important one, since it appears four times in different places, is the Apocryphon of John, which Apocryphon means basically a hidden teaching. And so this is the hidden teaching of John. John was one of the apostles who wrote the Gospel of John, and so this is attributed to him. And the Apocryphon of John then is the best text we have to describe the Gnostic creation. Unfortunately, I can't say there's only one version of the creation or one version of the Savior or one version of how things happened. As you go through the, the different Gospels, there are many, even contradictory versions of what happened, but they often have a common core. And that's why the Apocryphon of John is appreciated as giving us that common core. So basically, uh, if you want to go back and in the Hebrew Bible, you would go back to the book of Genesis and you would crack it open and it would say in seven days, God made the heavens and the earth and God said, let there be light and there was light. That's the creation myth of our culture. Well, here they're giving us a much different creation myth. And what they're saying in the Apocryphon of John is that divinity was pure consciousness. And there was just pure consciousness by itself in the cosmos. And what happened to this divine consciousness is that it thought. And immediately it became two. It became thinking and thought. And it so happens that in the Greek language, thinking is, uh, can become a masculine noun, whereas thought, anoia, becomes a feminine noun. And so this thinking a thought became the masculine and the feminine. And divinity itself became not just awareness, but vision. And this vision was not passive, but active. As it opened its eyes, vision projected outward into the cosmos like light itself. So where we say in the Old Testament, God said, let there be light and there was light, which is an, using voice actively to create things. Here it's using vision actively to create. And so it opened its eyes, it saw, and through its own vision, it saw images of itself and images of itself reflected back to itself in the cosmos. So the cosmos, and this is in the language of the Apocryphon of John, is a watery light. And it's a watery light where images of divine consciousness appear in the watery light and reflect it back to itself. So first, by thinking, it saw itself as God the Father. Then it saw itself as goddess, the mother, the thought, the object of the thinking. God the Father, goddess the mother turned towards each other, acknowledged each other, kissed, and through that produced the third part, the next step in the creation, the child. And the child is not thought, the child is not thinking, the child is thought thinking itself. It becomes the reflectivity. 
And through the child, the Trinity, the divine Trinity was made complete. The, the Gnostics have a Trinity and it's not God, the father, Jesus, the son, and the Holy spirit, like you have in Catholicism, it is the father, the mother, and the child. And from there, the next step in the Gnostic creation is that the child itself divided into two becoming Christ. And then from Christ, it created its own series of reflections within the cosmos. And it's what the Christ did is when it looked out into the cosmos and saw images of itself, Christ saw itself as not thinking or thought, but as love, as uh, understanding, as memory and image, idea. In fact, there are 12 reflections of Christ within the cosmos. And these are called the 12 eons in the Gnostic language. But eon just means a going outward and a return, a reflection uh, of who you are. And the last of the 12 eons or reflections of Christ was one named Sophia, meaning wisdom. So now you have the creation of wisdom, and she is like the female counterpart of the Christ. And wisdom then takes the next step in the creation. And it's a very fascinating step. It's, it's, I've puzzled over it for decades. What she does is she tries to think a thought, but she does it in such a way that the product of her thinking was ignorance. So in one version, she tried to grasp the totality of the father, mother, Christ, the entire creation up to that point. She tried to contain it all within her understanding, her mind, her vision, and was unable to. And the result was ignorance. In another version, which is a bit more complicated, is that she turns away from her consort, who is Christ, and decides to create on her own. In any case, what happens is she gives birth to ignorance and ignorance takes the form of darkness within the light and within the darkness, there's some flashes of lightning and suddenly a serpentine lion faced deity appears and she doesn't know what to do. And she's uh, afraid and she screams out, uh, Yalta Baoth, which is interpreted as being get away from here, dark creature. And unwittingly, she names this dark creature Yalta Baoth, who is her own ignorance. So now there's been a dark turning in the creation and darkness itself is created. Yalta Baoth then thinks itself to be God and takes a power from his mother, Sophia, the power which is the spark that allows for creation to occur. He takes it and goes off, and actually Sophia tries to hide what she created in, in the outermost edges of the creation. And so he shuffles off to the outermost edges of the creation, and he creates his own cosmos. But the cosmos that he creates is the cosmos that we find ourselves living in. He creates the seven 
visible heavens in the cosmos, which is to say the planets. And so he creates the moon and Mercury and Venus and the sun and Mars, Jupiter and Saturn and uh, the earth. And then he creates uh, five more layers of the cosmos, which is uh, earth, water, air, fire, and the ether. And so just as Christ had 12 eons around him, which were forms of his mind, Yaltabath creates 12 eons around himself, which are the 12 levels of the material cosmos. And how does humanity enter into all of this? Well, back at the beginning, I, I didn't mention that uh, after uh, the emergence of Christ and Sophia, the divine image of humanity occurred in the upper heavens, and that's called the Anthropos. And the Anthropos was an androgynous figure with hands and feet and a face and became the divine, became the human image of divinity. So Yaltabaoth and his uh, 12 cronies, which are called the archons or the rulers, they see this image of humanity up in the upper eons, up in the, the higher heavens, and they decide that they will create their own version of humanity. So they do. And what they end up creating, this is all coming to you from the Apocryphon of John. I'm just recounting the story. What they end up creating is another version of the Anthropos, but instead of giving it the higher faculties, which uh, the, the, the anthropos above has the faculties of knowledge and love and remembrance and wisdom, they give it different faculties. They give it desire, hunger, anger, pride, and uh, in general, 12 different passions of the soul. And this Anthropos is called the soulful Anthropos. In the language of the Gnostics, it's the psychic Anthropos. So this soulful version of humanity emerges. And then uh, Yaltabaoth is actually tricked by the upper, by Christ of all people, uh, to breathe his spark of creation into this Anthropos, this, this soulful Anthropos. And as a result, the Anthropos now has divine awareness. The moment that Yaltabaoth and his archons see the, their own human creation glowing with light and smarter than they are, they get angry and they create an even lower form of the Anthropos that is the material Anthropos. They take earth, air, fire, and water and mix it with the ether and create this material, material uh, receptacle, the body, and they thrust the anthropos, the psychic or, or soulful anthropos, into this material body. So what about us? Who are we as human beings? Oh, well, what Yaltabaoth does is he puts on the disguise of the Divine Father. He calls himself Yahweh or Lord of 
And, and the entire vision that we have from Judeo-Christianity of God as God the Father with the long beard sitting on the throne who is an angry and jealous God. Well, that's Yaltabaoth. And he appears as God in the Garden of Eden. He takes Adam, who is the Anthropos, and puts him in the Garden. And the story gets a little bit complicated as to how Adam divides up into Adam and Eve, but that's what happens. And he says, but don't eat from the tree of knowledge, because if you do, you will die. And he says, rather, eat from the tree of life. And he wants Adam to eat from the tree of life, which is their life, which is to say the life of the body and the life of the soul. And so desire and longing and hunger and pain and suffering and everything that goes with it. Well, it's actually Sophia who takes on the appearance of Eve and says to Adam, don't listen to God, listen to me. You want to eat the tree from the tree of knowledge. And so they do. They eat from the tree of knowledge, which is the tree of gnosis. And at that moment, their eyes open and they realize not only are they physical bodies created by the, uh, the archons in Yaltabaoth, not only are they the soulful bodies which are created by Yaltabaoth and his archons, but also they are divine in origin. And by eating the tree from the tree of Gnosis, they recognize their divine nature, that they possess the divine spark, the higher anthropos from the highest heavens. That's their true image. So this knowledge that we are truly divine and that we come from divinity is something that Yaltabaoth and his, his archons want to hide from us. So once we ate from the tree of knowledge, he cast us out of paradise into this world, and we are trapped in the material world. And when we look up into the heavens and we see the moon and Mercury and Venus and Mars, what we're seeing, according to the Gnostics, is the archons ruling over us. And it's very astrological that in the same way that in astrology you believe in the astrological influence of the planets over the course of your lives, for the Gnostics, the planets are constantly beaming out these signals. And the planet Venus, for example, is beaming out this signal, you must desire, you must lust, you must feel lust. And the planet Mars is beaming out this signal, anger, feel anger, you must feel anger. Because in a certain sense, they're feeding on that anger and desire and everything else, pride from the sun. And every time you engage in an act which fulfills one of those passions of the soul that belong to the archon, then you're feeding them. So the Gnostic uses revelation, uses rituals, uses uh, reading uh, to enlighten themselves of their true situation in the cosmos, and that there is this higher invisible cosmos that we can reach through mind and through contemplation. 
and through the divine spark planted in us. And as I said, that divine spark includes things like memory, understanding, wisdom, which is Sophia herself. And we have all of this in our memory, but buried. And we're constantly distracted by the archon. So how do I spend my day? If I spend my day surfing the internet and being interested in what appears before my eyes and what the internet is feeding me is all these images of lust and anger and violence and other things. Well, I'm feeding the archons what they want. But if I turn my eyes, and it's that simple, if I turn my eyes and start to meditate on a sacred work of art, or I start to read a text which reminds me of who I am and where I come from, who I truly am, then I, I, I can use mind and spirit to, to elevate myself past the prison of the archons and into the divine sphere. And as I said, the, the Gnostics actually had a whole bunch of rituals which they used in order to center themselves again in spirit and, and experience who they truly are. So it's a long story, but that's the story of the creation. And I haven't even really talked about when Jesus walked the earth. So, so in the next part, what happens is this fellow Jesus is born and he's actually not that divine. The, the Gnostics are not interested in the divine birth story, you know, about the three wise men and the manger and, and so on. For them, it's really the baptism at the Jordan when Jesus was, uh, I believe, in his 20s, that uh, he came face to face with John the Baptist. John the Baptist plunged him into the Jordan River. And at that moment, the divine Christ, who is this being that pre-existed in time from the highest heavens, descended into Jesus at that moment and awakened him. So suddenly, Jesus became this awakened being. The, the divine seed was planted in him through the Christ. And indeed, Christ actually took up residence in Jesus' body. And this was a dangerous thing for the Christ to do. The Christ is this spirit from the upper heavens who had to pass through all of the cosmic framework, past the archons, going past the realm of Saturn, the realm of Jupiter, the realm of the sun and the moon and so on, go through these seven heavens then go through the five layers of the body, the earth, air, fire, and water, and the ether, and enter into this dark prison as this spark of light and this remembrance. So when Jesus Christ walked the earth, he did so as a revealer. He didn't die on the cross because we have sinned and our sins need to be redeemed. That's the story of Orthodox Christianity. Uh, no, this Christ was a revealer. And what he was revealing was the Gnosis. And the Gnosis he revealed was this entire story of the beginning. So once you know the story of the beginning, you know who you are and where you come from. And then the last part of the story, I guess, is the end. Where do we go? 
and uh, what happened to Jesus Christ according to the Gnostics? Was he crucified? That's where it gets very interesting because you have different versions of the crucifixion according to different Gnostic writers. And some believe that only the body of Jesus was crucified and the spirit escaped to the upper heavens, the Christ. Uh, others believe that the Christ itself willingly took on the sacrifice in order to redeem Sophia and what Sophia had done at the beginning of time, because it was Sophia that created Yalta Bath. It was Sophia, uh, through Sophia, that Yalta Bath created all this suffering. And so he had to perform an act which redeemed what Sophia had done. And so he suffered on the cross. In any case, uh, the most important thing is what happens uh, not through the crucifixion, but afterward, because most of the Gnostic Gospels focus on Christ coming back from the dead and explaining to his disciples, ah, now that I've returned through all the 12 eons, the, the, the five and the seven layers of the cosmos, now that I've made the path and ascended through all those, and, and now I'm coming back to you to show you and teach you the path because when you die, you are going to have, your soul will try to rise up through the cosmic framework. And as it tries to rise up through the cosmic framework, it will come up against each one of those archons. And each one of those archons is like a gatekeeper who will not let you pass through their realm if you surrendered to them during your lifetime. If you surrendered to too much desire, then the archon at the level of Venus will throw you back down. And if you had too much pride, then the archon at the level of the sun will throw you back down. But if you do as Christ says, and then it became into, very... Into reincarnation, correct, Lawrence? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, it's what the Greeks called metempsychosis. And metempsychosis means literally that your soul, your psuche, would have another existence in another body. And depending on what you did during your life, that would depend on which body you would take on. So if you did suffer from too much pride, you would probably come back in animal form and in the animal form of a lion or, and, and so on. And you, or you would come back as a monkey or an insect or whatever. So, so they did definitely believe in some form of reincarnation. But uh, they also had uh, this important practice of knowing the names of all the different archons. And if you knew the names of the archons, through that knowledge of the names, you could get past their gates and rise up. So basically, they created these maps of the afterlife and how you could navigate the journey through the afterlife in order to return to the divine realm from which you came originally. So that I, I've been going on for a good 20 minutes now, but from the beginning to the middle to the end, uh, that is the, the Gnostic myth. And uh, I'll just finish off with this wonderful quote from uh, the dialogue. No, no, this is actually from the Gospel of Thomas from one of the Nag Hammadi texts, where the disciples said to Jesus, um, tell us how the end will come. 
And Christ looks at them and says, why is it that you seek the end? Have you laid bare the beginning? Because the end will be where the beginning is. And it gives you an idea of how the Gnostic texts work. They're like these Zen koans. And so the end will be where the beginning is. Now, you might think of that as, uh, oh, okay, after the end of the world, it'll start over again and we'll have a new beginning. But no, what they mean is that the only way you can understand the end, the only way that you can move forward through time is to go back through time that you will only understand the end by understanding the beginning. And a lot of their texts are about how was the world actually created? So if the world was created in this way, that tells us who we are. And now that we know who we are, we know where we're going and we know where we can return towards the end. <clears throat> so this is the way the Gnostics think. And it's a very unified way of thinking. It's very holistic that they're constantly looking at things uh, from uh, multiple perspectives that unify at some deeper level. And that, that's, that's really the mystical aspect of Gnosticism. Wow. I, I, I love it so much because it's so, it, it's so, it's the same in, in a way, but then it's so different all at the same time. And this is Christianity. I mean, exactly. <laughs> can you imagine that if the heretics were not stamped out, this is what we would all be learning in church. But yeah. this is the version of Christianity that we were supposed to inherit in our culture that got repressed as a heresy. And it's like, no, 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 no. The, you know, Christ died on the cross for our sins because we're born into sin. And, and they didn't care about the, the revelatory, the, the revelation, the knowledge, the mystical experience of divinity. None of that mattered to the church. Right. So so we've inherited and the Gnostics themselves say it, that we've inherited the teachings of the archons, that the church itself ah, is a bit difficult. Like they were heresies, but some of the Gnostics wanted to become mainstream like Valentinus. He wanted to become pope of the church, but he didn't succeed. And so he was rejected, but they wanted to be the church, the Gnostics, but they weren't in the end. And so the ones that became the church were like Yaltabaoth, you know, Yahweh, the God, the Father, and so on. Yeah, please. They call him the God of the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. and again, all of this together fascinates me because of, you know, the demonology, how... I, I was talking to somebody about this and they were almost angry. Like, no, that's not the way it is. It's like, listen, I'm not saying that I believe it. You know, I'm, o I'm open-minded mm -hmm. because again, my problem with all this is who decides what's canonical and what's not canonical. The church. Do you feel Lawrence and from your personal experience that, you know, all these texts, the Nag Hammadi, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that they were intentionally, well, obviously they they were prosecuted for them, so they had to hide. But do you feel that they're not non-canonical because they don't fit the narrative, because they can't control us, because it's different? Obviously, you know, we have this, we have what you what you would call the Satan figure, uh, 
in, in essence created us created the material world and they have a problem with that you know because mm -hmm. no 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 god jesus christ made the world you know and this is how it is and this is what it is but you know there's again when it comes to mesopotamia sumeria uh egypt all these different cultures all over the world you can't deny the fact that there are similar figures throughout all of history and similar beliefs through all of history so in the end we can't all be right mm -hmm. you know so do you feel that it, it, it intentionally was hidden because of this and not only that but you know the orthodox church casted it as a heresy but then adopted some of its doctrines you know Irenaeus mm -hmm. criticizes them but then quotes the gnostics so it's mm -hmm. like what do you come you know the hypocrisy mm -hmm. um but there like you said there's got to be some truth to it um you know what are your thoughts on that yeah i think uh people like Irenaeus who is one of the church fathers which is to say one of the people he was a bishop and so he was interested in clearly defining the limits of what the church was and what it was not. And remember, when I say church from the first centuries, it wasn't even recognized by Rome at this period. So they were all in the underground. They were just a bunch of secret communities getting together in catacombs and having Eucharistic meals in catacombs. They were the underground. <clears throat> and it's like one faction of the underground said that the other faction of the underground uh, is wrong. Now, eventually, it did become the state religion of Rome uh, under Constantine. But if you understand Roman religion, Roman religion was totally in favor of multiple gods. They were always, you know, opening up a new temple for this new god. It was a very open religion. How Christianity became a closed religion is, is something that's fascinating. And we see this all through time in a way that, that whether it's the Muslim faith or the Jewish faith or the Christian faith, you define yourself by being different from the others. And our God is the only God. And it was important to the early church to narrowly define their God. Now, one of the prime... Uh, aspects of the church is belief that you have to believe in god and the gnostics had a place for those people they called them believers we are the knowers they're the believers and they're not so bad they'll get to roughly the same place that we will and they'll get there through faith pistis is the greek word and we get there through knowledge gnosis and there's room for both of us Whereas when you read Irenaeus, he says, we believe in the church, we have pistis. And these so-called Gnostics, the Gnosticoi, and, and he denigrates them as people who claim to know. So there's no space in the early church for these knowers, as they were called, only for the believers. So... Why? Because probably you're going to come to God through the structure, through the hierarchy. It's not a direct experience. It's an experience that's mediated by priests, by, you know, the structure of the priests, the hierarchy and, and so on, which is what the state wants. The state wants you to have a form of faith that's mediated by them. 
So it all makes sense in a way from their point of view, what they want, because it's their power structure. But we become aware probably only now that it is a power structure. Most people lived within that power structure and took it for granted as the power structure. It's the best one. We should stay within it. That's the tradition that was in the culture that I came from, Malta, with its Roman Catholic Church, which survived for centuries as the main structure of the society. And it's only in the 20th century that all this war and fragmentation and migration and uh, communities crossing over with communities, beliefs crossing over with other beliefs, mass communication, that we have no choice but to break it all apart and rebuild it. And Gnosticism is part of that effort to rebuild in a much broader, universal, uh, and unified way. That's my take on it anyway. What you were talking about, the structure of the church, you know, the 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 Pope talks to, the, to God every day, the guy under him talks to him every other day, the guy under that, you know, every other week. And what Gnosticism does, it, it, it takes that power away from them because we are divine. Mm-hmm. Um, just like Yaltabaoth, when he was created, uh, you didn't mention it, he took divinity from Sophia. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that divinity that she had, and that's why he was able to do the things that he was, because he does have power, um, because he is the you know he's he has divinity in him, and I feel that the reason they cast this out is because of that, because we are divine beings. You know how they say we're spiritual beings having a human experience, exactly. And and to them, that's a problem, and. I find it again so fascinating theology because it really breaks down the the human psychology and how it works. And again, I, I believe it's Carl Jung that says this. Uh people will find something uh to be able to correlate everything. You know, they'll find something in order in order to understand and, and find purpose and correlate and they'll find correlations between everything. Might it be that? Who knows? Mm. Because there's so many beliefs out there. Um, One thing which Jung said, which is interesting, is he was asked, do you believe in God? And his answer was, no, I know God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) which shows you his Gnostic nature. But I was going to mention that the, the early, the Gnostics just considered themselves to be early Christians or, or Jews. And they felt that they could write gospels, that they could receive divine revelation. And through this divine revelation, they could write what the spirit was telling them. And this was also disturbing for the church. The church was trying to say, no, 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 there was only four people who heard what Christ said. And this is, uh, and not even directly. It's like Mac. Uh, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, it's like they were taking, they only wrote down their Gospels around 70 or 80 AD, which is to say uh, 40 years roughly after the crucifixion of Christ. So they were writing down Christ's 
life and sayings a good 30 or 40 years after his death. And the early church was saying, that's the only authentic words of Christ. Whereas the Gnostics were saying, no, 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 there's actually much, much more than that. And some of it came through uh, word of mouth, from texts which uh, were circulating. And then some of it, as I said, through divine revelation. And what's wrong with a person writing their own gospel and saying, I feel like I've received a divine vision, I've received a divine word in the form of a poem or a story, I'm going to write this down and this is my gospel. But of course, who <laughs> would, you know, there's no structure or institution which would respect you for that unless it's a kind of a structured institution like a, a mystery school where each person is invited to go into themselves and find their, their, their inner spiritual truth. It's, again, so fascinating because, and, and again, my problem, I feel the Bible is a manual on life. If right now, if you're creating something and it's doing good, it doesn't hurt children, it doesn't cause harm, then so be it. So the Bible to me is you know, a summary of what you're supposed to be like in life. And that's a good thing. You know, if, if, if it changes your life for the better, then, then so be it, live a better life and you need guidance and you want to use that as the guidance to guide you, then more power to you. It's you know, a repository of, of wisdom, a repository of traditional wisdom, uh, both the old Testament and the new Testament. Having said that, I don't think, limiting wisdom into one book or one collection of books, which is what the exactly. Bible is, is going to, it, it definitely gives you a starting point and it makes you feel secure. And I can be accused of the same thing that I, I'm using the Nag Hammadi library as my Bible, but uh, I actually but don't, you know, I'm open. It's what you said though, Lawrence, in order to understand the end, you must look at the beginning. And it's like you said, they, it's it's structured in a way that it's appealing and attractive to them so they don't want to step outside the box but my problem with it all is that different translations of the same text say different things mm -hmm. and that's where it's like but wait how can you know what's right and what's not you know what i mean so how do i for a text that fascinates me the gospel of judas Mm -hmm. how it flips everything on its head mm -hmm. and in in the text you know when judah says i know where you come from you know you come from the realms of barbelo he's seeing him for what he is and again it's so fascinating can you talk a little bit about the gospel of judas because it's it's one of those texts that really you know just mm. it's like wow yeah well, I mentioned the Nag Hammadi discovery in 1945, where you basically had 13 books called codices that were discovered. And there was another discovery of another book, which has now come down to us <clears throat> being called the Chakos Codex, uh, which contains about four texts of which one of them is the Gospel of Judas. And that had a much different story. Unfortunately, it was left in a safe deposit box in New York for a good 10 or 15 years and underwent some serious deterioration. 
the the antique dealer who had the text cut out parts of it and kept them separate from the version that he sold it's got a really long strange history but finally it only came out a few years ago through national geographic within the last i forget the exact date but the last 10 years and so it's very recent and when you read it it's necessary to know the Gnostic language and the Gnostic world of view. But even having that, even scholars can't agree if Judas is the good guy or the bad guy in this story. I, I tend to agree that it turns things on its head and says that Judas is the good guy. And he did what he did so that the divine Christ could fulfill his mission on earth and he was he knew truly who Christ was, where he came from, and he was a part of the whole story to, to allow Christ to fulfill his divine mission. So Judas knew exactly what he was doing. And betraying was not a true betrayal, but rather an act of compassion. Uh, meanwhile, uh, April DeConnick has written a book on the Gospel of Judas where she says, no, 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 he's one of the demons. And that he's just one of the demons who is successful in getting this guy, Jesus, crucified because they were trying to persecute him and get him out of their cosmos, right? Because so, God calls him a, di a diamond is what he calls him. Exactly. Like yeah. And even that is a loaded word because diamond can mean angel or it can mean demon. So was he an angel or was he a demon? You know, this is what I love about these texts <laughs> is you can't pin it down into one interpretation. And that's no. a good thing, right? I'm sure you can create a whole church with its dogma that says, we believe in the gospel of Judas where he was the betrayer. And uh, another church, which is a schism group, says, uh, no, Judas was the angel who allowed Christ to fulfill his mission. But uh, you definitely get both in, in that gospel of Judas. And what you get is to see the story from Judas's point of view. That's what makes it so fascinating. So what did Judas actually think about all this, you know? And not only that, but uh, but Jesus confiding in him and 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 revealing things to him again of the gnosis, you know, what they needed to do and what they needed to learn. And, and what I love about the whole thing is he makes the other disciples look like idiots. Yeah, basically. You know, when Jesus is looking at them doing the Eucharist and they're like, you know, you don't know what you do. Mm. And, uh, you know, what's interesting about the Gnostic text is that they tend to give priority to Mary Magdalene, to Judas, and to some of the other disciples who normally don't have a voice, like Thomas or Philip. For them, Mark, Matthew, uh, those ones, uh, sorry, Matthew specifically and John, that they already have their voice as, as disciples of, of Jesus Christ. But uh, Mary Magdalene, she never, we never got to hear from her point of view. Well, in the Gnostic Gospels, there is a Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and there is a Gospel of Judas, and there is a Gospel of Thomas, you know. So we get to hear the, the different versions of the story. And of course, the role that Mary Magdalene plays in the Gnostic texts is, is, is so revolutionary to our understanding of 
who she was. Because repeatedly she's referred to as the preferred disciple, as even the consort of Jesus, and he loved her more than the other disciples. And Peter, who is exactly the one who becomes the father of the church, Peter is, asks him, why do you love her more than us? Why do you kiss her often on the mouth? So so it's, it's just totally fascinating that this version where Mary Magdalene was probably the most important of all the disciples, that's the version that got uh, repressed through history, which reemerges through these Gnostic texts. It's like watching a show or, or something that you're so used to seeing and then, you know, watching a spinoff of it. It's like, no, you're doing it all wrong. You know, like the, I can compare it to the new Star Wars movies where everybody's criticizing it because it's not following what it's supposed to. And this is almost like the same thing. But when you were talking about, let's talk about this other figure that also interests me, uh, John the Baptist, how you said that Jesus Christ, was a human you know on earth he was a human he was married yeah let's be precise i mean his name was jesus and jesus. christ is a title yeah christ means the anointed one it's a title so this guy jesus yeah was walking the earth yeah go ahead yeah. and uh, uh, i believe he had a family as well i mean that's why they talk about mary magdalene being his uh you know his wife or whoever she was mm -hmm. um and when John the Baptist baptized him and the divinity came into him, I feel that this relates because there's so many missing years in, in Jesus' life that what did he do? Mm -hmm. Where did he go? Mm -hmm. you know, and, and they, in a sense, can't, they, you know, they'll say whatever, obviously, to counter uh, the argument. But it's like, you know, where did he really go? It's like literally he was born and then you know, is it's year 33 or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know John the Baptist. Some people, cult or whatever you want to call it, regarded John the Baptist as the Messiah, know, the Christ. The Messiah. Yeah. Do you have any, um, any insight on that? Do you, are you familiar with what's called mundanism? Yeah, that's a good example. So the Mandaeans uh, use baptism as their central ritual. And it makes sense when you read the Gnostic texts as well, baptism is their most fundamental ritual. Now, you might think, oh, okay, just they're going to go in the water and come out of the water. No, they use that sacred act of going into the water and coming out of the water by putting a lot of symbolic meanings onto it. And uh, so to give you one example, from the Gnostic point of view, the, the baptism involves going into the water. You become like this divine consciousness in the watery light, seeing reflections of itself. And to go into the water is to go plunging through the entire cosmic framework, including its dark and evil aspects, which is the, the realm of Yalta Bath and its archons called the lower eons, 
But then you go plunging through the upper eons, the realms of the higher realms of, of divinity with Christ and Sophia and so on, uh, until you have this moment of divine revelation. And you, they say, put on the garment of light because you see your divine self reflected in front of you like, you, you, like an angelic being. And this angelic being, which is a divine version of yourself, because everything in the upper heavens is mirrored. If you see another, you see them as yourself, and the other sees themselves as you. Everything's mirrored. So the angel that appears to you in this upper realm is a mere reflection of yourself, but your divine self comes to you and puts on this garment of light around you. So when you come out of the water, according to the Gnostic ritual of baptism, you're now wearing the garment of light, which is the image, the image of yourself, the divine image of yourself. And, and when I said you see yourself as an angel, you also see yourself as Christ, or Sophia, I imagine. Uh, you put on this divine image, and you, so now you will be an image of Christ or an image of Sophia in this existence because you wear the garment of light and it protects you and it surrounds you. So this is the baptism ritual of the Gnostics. And I've only touched the surface. It gets, gets much, much deeper. And you can construct a whole ritual, a whole theology, a whole mythology around that simple act of baptism. Now, who instigated the act of baptism? I mean, it does exist in Judaism in the sense that people would bathe in the mikvah before going into the temple in Judaism. So there was this act of, of washing yourself before entering the temple. And then John the Baptist said, no, 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 you don't want to bathe in the mikvah. It's dirty. It's crawling with scorpions. Go out into the Jordan River and bathe yourself and plunge into the waters which flow from above. This is the way it was expressed. So the Jordan River out in nature was the natural waters, the divine waters. And he instituted this ritual of baptism. And... Without a doubt, it can be interpreted many ways. We, we talked about the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Dead Sea Scrolls is a totally other tradition. It's Judaic, but not Christian. It's scrolls, not texts. It's written in Hebrew, whereas the Nag Hammadi Library is written in Coptic and originally in Greek. And uh, But the most important figure for them, and them, I mean the Essenes. It was probably this group called the Essenes, who were a group that broke off from the temple in Jerusalem, went out to the Dead Sea, and formed their own community out in the Dead Sea. They loved who, writing, and they were just higher. They they appreciated knowledge, no? And exactly, and they and they were using baptism as one of their main rituals, being out by the Dead Sea, you know, and uh, so a lot of the tradition of John the Baptist. There's there's questions: Was John the Baptist an Essene? Uh, was he carrying on the Essene tradition? And uh, through John the Baptist, Christianity inherited a lot of Essene traditions. It's 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 a fascinating area. We. 
we have too many holes in our knowledge to know for sure what the story is, but there's many, many rich threads to follow, to, to, to pick up and try to understand the story. Yeah. Again, it's so amazing. And like you, like you said earlier, the, uh, you know, we did, this is a crash course of narcissism. And what I love about it is that now I can, when I'm talking to somebody about it, because again, a lot of people don't know, don't know what this is. A lot of people don't know that John the Baptist has a cult, you know, it's like, oh, that's not right. Or this and that. And you get that friction. And so now what I can do is, uh, I can be like, you know what, just listen to my podcast episode <laughs> with Lawrence and take it for what you may. And again, I, this is uh, so the people know this is loosely based off of your lecture, which I've watched about four or five times now trying to comprehend the, again, it's so when I was first looking at it, I was like, this is very complicated, but I'm learning a whole new religion. Mm -hmm. in a way you know what i mean because again it's all the it's so similar all at the same time while being so different mm -hmm. and it just really like you said it really makes you look into things and yeah well that and, brings us to the interesting subject of the integration of the gnostic worldview into our culture so as i said the the first english translation came out in 1977 and if it was a very difficult text to understand. Even the translations were not very good. They, they misunderstood a lot of the terminology. So it's taken uh, the last 30, 40 years for those texts to be better understood. In the meantime, artists and writers have been plunging through those texts and, and taking out the gems of understanding. And a film like The Matrix, The Matrix Trilogy, is just filled with Gnosticism, that the Wachowskis knew their Gnostic myth inside and out and basically created a modern telling of the Gnostic myth using computer technology and all of these ideas to, to, to retell the Gnostic myth in our culture and so integrate the Gnostic myth into our culture. And you could say the same thing about quite a few other films, The Truman Story or um, Avatar and even children's books. Uh, I, I watch a lot of anime with my 10-year-old son and the, the Japanese anime is just loaded with Gnostic ideas. It, it's, it, it's a very a perennial myth. And so you can expect it to show up in different places at different times. But when you once you learn the the keys that make up the worldview of Gnosticism and you start looking at anime or manga, comic books and so on, it's everywhere in there because the 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 sharp ones, the ones who are on a little bit on the outside of the orthodoxy, the ones who have an edge and who are heretical and who are interested in things that are not the mainstream. Those are the ones who are going to be digging into those texts and finding, like I said, their own labyrinthine thread, their own little take onto the Gnostic worldview and run away with it. So it's very inspiring texts, and it's, it's definitely influencing our culture in a big way through cinema, through anime, and through everything else. Yeah, to relate to that, you know, and, and to summarize, 
it's so hard especially with 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 all the symbology in these texts and in in the bible you know how they say revelations is actually you know 666 is actually a reference to nero and you know the roman empire and all this stuff so it's like and people take it in such a literal sense um you know how can how can you distinguish the real and what's not real it's it's so complex you know <laughs> mm -hmm. and and literal is the first reading everything should be led read literally in the first reading but then you do a second reading and you start to select and you start to allow pieces of the text to resonate with other pieces of the text. And that's where you start to come up with your own interpretation as opposed to the literal reading. And even the church recognized that there's an allegorical interpretation, that there's levels of reading of any text. So uh, I, I think staying at the literal reading, it's valid, but it's, it's not the only one. You have to read in spirit as, as well as letter of the text. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you can relate to that as, as well as being a, a visionary artist, which hopefully we can do a separate segment on that because that also interests me. Yeah, I'd love um, to. You know, with a lot of people, obviously art influences society, but you look at all these different famous paintings and you don't realize their origins. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, to, to sum up, do you have any... Um, any final words for the listeners that we can leave them with? And, you know, this all relates. I, I love Terrence McKenna's material and Terrence McKenna also talks about Gnosticism and, mm -hmm. and its origins and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. he really dives deep into that because he was such a, uh, you know, this figure that, that amazing, the, the, the wealth of knowledge that he had. And also I admire you for, again, this is only the tip of the iceberg. But you, you're just like this encyclopedia of information. And when I looked you up, I was like, man, I, ha I have to contact this guy and get him on. Mm -hmm. But, you know, all of this can relate to one of my favorite quotes that Terrence McKenna has, you know, uh, uh, in this society. I'm paraphrasing it, you know, in order to be sane, there's a certain level of alienation to it. Mm hmm. You know, and, that, and I, I, that's so powerful because it is true. If you don't have the mainstream views on things, again, this heresy, this uh, uh, non-traditional view, you know, you're wrong. No, that's not the right way. Yeah. And that relates to a lot of things in society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we should mention uh, Philip K. Dick as well, the science fiction writer who was understood as a science fiction writer in the 70s and 80s, heavily influenced by Gnosticism at the end of his life. And now we understand that he wasn't just writing science fiction, that his view of the world runs much, much deeper and science fiction was just his way, his medium of, of communicating that. So McKenna, uh, Philip K. Dick, there, there's... And I'm happy to be in touch with other people who I respect immensely, like uh, Eric Davis, who is a writer, Alex Gray, who is a painter. And when we get together, it's like, oh, you believe the same, not believe, you know the same things that I know. That we, we become we... best friends. Hmm? 
It's like, did we just become best friends? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like, oh, we share the same worldview. Okay. Suddenly all the reference points match up one after another and you get very far going deeper into the same spaces with people that you can resonate with in that way. And so uh, that becomes your community. I've, I've managed to find my community, even if uh, we have our community here in Vienna, I'm surrounded by people, but I also have my international community that I'm crossing paths with every few months or a few years, and we pick up where we left off. And we, we know who the others are just because we're all doing our work, and, and then through our work, our paths cross, and we re-acknowledge what we're doing, and then we go off into the world again. So it, it's, a, it's great fun. It's, it's fantastic to belong to this community of people who had the primordial experience of divinity that woke them up and changed their life and made them realize, okay, in this existence, I have to walk this path. And no more compromising. Any form of compromise is going to kill me. So I, even if it makes me starve, even if it makes me travel from place to place, become a nomad, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to just walk the path I have to walk. And that ends up being your path. And strangely enough, as you walk your path, that's which is in the desert, you're going to meet other people walking the desert path and cross with them and go, ah, hello. Yeah. And there's even communities out in the desert once you get out there until it becomes Burning Man and you have 30,000 people. But we won't get into that, you know. <laughs> but yeah, so so we're walking the desert path of the visionaries and the mystics and the Gnostics and and it's, it's a good path to be walking. I'm, I'm really happy about it. And I get to meet people like you who I've never met before through this medium, which is very, very strange, recording a conversation with a total stranger. And it's beautiful. Yeah. I, I really appreciate the, that it exists. Podcasts exist as, as this beautiful way for us to go deeper and deeper past the superficiality of the media and going deeper into language, storytelling, encounters, and things like that. So I'm grateful to be able to appear here. Can you say that that uh, scripture, that story, the the quote, the end is where the beginning is? Because I, I just love that. And we can end it on that note. Sure. So again, this comes from the Gospel of Thomas. And Gospel of Thomas is a series of sayings of Jesus recorded. And one of the sayings, uh, the disciples said to Christ, I'm just doing this from memory. The disciples said to Christ, tell us uh, how the end will come about. And Christ stared at them and said, have you laid bare the beginning so that now you ask about the end? Because the end will be where the beginning is. I love it. Uh, <laughs> Lawrence, thank you so much for joining me today. I don't think I've been excited. I don't I didn't sleep very much because I was so excited. And, uh, you know, again, one of the more complex topics that I've talked about, but one that intrigues me so much and finding somebody who is so passionate about it, like yourself, who's able to tell it with such ease. And again, just a wealth of knowledge. I really appreciate your time today. And, and thank you so much. And also thank you for sending me those books that you did send me. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to receive them. Um, and again, Lawrence, thank you so much for your time. 
Wonderful. Wonderful talking with you then. Well, there you have it. That was a crash course in Gnosticism. Please check out Lawrence's work. Uh, He does great work. And please remember to follow us on social media at the Juan Juan podcast. Shoot me an email if you want to hear me talk about anything. Have anybody on if you want to be on the show. My email is thehuanonhuanpodcast at gmail.com. Please like, share, subscribe, comment, whatever it is. Wherever you listen to your podcast, it'll really help the show. Thank you for the support. And until next time.